0: Philip and uh, Shannon both grew up in this church and as one of the older pastors here, it, it is unbelievably satisfying and fulfilling to see the Lord call men and women who were once children here into the work of ministry and the preaching of the gospel and the care of the flock of God. Very much a joy to me. Please open in your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter. As noted earlier, we're in a series on the book of 1 Peter, and we find ourselves today uh, up to verse 10. Up to verse 10. So I'd like us to read together 1 Peter 1 verses 10 through 12. And the title of my sermon this morning is concerning this salvation, which are the opening words of our text. 1 Peter 1:10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word this morning. I'd like to begin with with an illustration, uh, an illustration from the Bible. Actually, imagine that. And it's drawn from Matthew 11 and Luke 7. John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Messiah, he was a prophet sent by God to prepare the way for Christ. John said of himself, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. John, of course, was a contemporary of Jesus. And he began his ministry before Jesus began his. John was actually the last of the prophets, to prophesy of the grace that was to be ours in Jesus Christ. In the process of calling Israel to repentance in preparation for the coming of the Messiah, John the Baptist denounced Herod's sinful union with his brother's wife. Well, that didn't win him any points with Herod, so Herod arrested John and bound him in chains and imprisoned him. John would not leave that prison alive. While he was there, he sent messengers to Jesus to ask him, Are you the one, or do we look for another? Are you the one? Or do we look for another? Though we aren't told why John asked this question, it's likely that John was having trouble reconciling his dire situation with his expectations. John expected the Messiah, the great promised king, to pull down unrighteous oppressors like Herod and to rescue and lift up and establish the righteous, but here he was, a righteous man, down in a dungeon, languishing in chains, sorely oppressed by an unrighteous ruler, Herod, who showed great contempt for God and his law, and who was about to execute him. Though John had pointed to Jesus as the Lamb of God, though he saw the Spirit descend from heaven, remain on Jesus, though he knew that Jesus was the one who would baptize in the Holy Spirit, Jesus wasn't in that moment delivering the righteous from cruel and oppressive rulers like Herod. Herod. And he wasn't coming to John's rescue. John was wondering and inquiring, like all the prophets who preceded him, who the spirit within him was indicating. The spirit certainly seemed to have pointed to Jesus as the Christ. But there were things John didn't understand. There were things he couldn't possibly understand because they were still mysteries hidden within the Godhead. So he sent messengers asking, Jesus, are you the one or do we look for another? But when the messengers arrived to where Jesus was, they witnessed Jesus performing unfathomably marvelous miracles. According to Matthew, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, Matthew says, he bestowed sight. And the messengers from John witnessed all of this. And then Jesus sent them back with these words tell john what you hear and see the blind receive their sight the lame walk the lepers are cleansed the deaf hear the dead are raised and the poor have good news preach to them in other words John, yes, I am the one. I am fulfilling the prophecies concerning the Christ. And then he added a postscript. Blessed is the one who is not offended at me. Now, this is just part of an illustration. It's not today's text. The problem with sharing an illustration from the Bible is the temptation to want to preach on that, but that's not what I'm supposed to preach on. But I have to say that when things happen that we simply can't understand, when, to the best of our understanding, things don't add up, we will be blessed if we are not offended at him. If we aren't scandalized by what we don't understand, if instead we trust his divine and infinite wisdom, he has this. Well, once the messengers left to return to John, Jesus gave John the Baptist very high praise indeed. Who did you go to see? A prophet? Yes, he was a prophet, and more than a prophet, he was the promised messenger sent to prepare the way. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Among those born of women, there were none greater than John. John had a greater privilege, a greater honor, a greater revelation, a greater blessing than Moses or David or Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel or of anyone who had been born of women. But then Jesus said something amazing that relates directly to our text Among those born of women, there's risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What? Now he's talking about us. We've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. John the Baptist was greater than all the heroes of the Old Testament, greater than anyone born of women. Yet the least in the kingdom is greater than him. How can the least in the kingdom be greater than the greatest prophet? How can that be? I'll tell you how. Because as great as John's revelation was, And as great as John was, he did not know Jesus as the crucified one. He did not know Jesus as the risen redeemer. He did not know Jesus as the ascended Christ. He did not know Jesus as the founder and perfecter of our faith who endured the cross, despising the shame. He didn't know Jesus as the one who's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, Whoever lives to make intercession for us, who goes to prepare a place for us, and who will return to receive us unto himself in our glorified bodies. With respect to the revelation John received and the message he understood and preached and what he knew and experienced, we are greater. Not because we're better people, But because we've received a greater revelation, we've received a greater blessing and a greater privilege than Moses or David or John the Baptist received. Why? Because we know this salvation. Peter here wants to awaken his readers and awaken us to a sense of the greatness and the glory and the honor and the privilege that we have as Christians to know this salvation. Peter was trying to help these beaten down, persecuted believers who had come into Christ's glorious kingdom to know and understand the incalculably great honor and privilege that was theirs as those to whom this salvation had come. Well, we finally come to the opening line of our text concerning this salvation well we see that in verse 10 and we have to glance back what salvation is he talking about well it's it's the salvation which comes from the father's great mercy it's that salvation which causes us to be born again it's that salvation which gives us a living hope which secures for us an inheritance It's a salvation which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It will never fade. It's a salvation for which we are guarded by God's power. It's a salvation which keeps us rejoicing even in great trial. It's a salvation which endures the little while of various trials. It's a salvation which causes us to love Jesus and to know joy inexpressible. And he says in verse 9, at the end of verse 9, it is the salvation of our souls. Concerning this salvation, the immediate context is the salvation of our souls. Oh, The salvation of the body is not yet. We abound in hope for it. The salvation of the natural order and the social order is not yet. We groan inwardly for it. But the salvation of our souls is now already. We have obtained the salvation of our souls. So we sing. I'm tempted to sing. You are my God and you save my soul. I am yours forevermore. I won't be moved of this, I'm sure. Sing it with me. You are my God and you saved my soul. Why do Christians talk so much about the salvation of souls? Like, why are you guys so focused on souls? I'll I'll tell you why. Because without the salvation of souls, we will not be his forevermore. Without the salvation of our souls, we will not be raised to dwell in that glorious society of perfect righteousness and peace. We will instead be cast away to outer darkness. Jesus said... What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So the church preaches the salvation of souls, which is the outcome of faith in the gospel of God's grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. God has bestowed a great and very high privilege upon us by revealing to us this salvation and by sending us forth with the news of it. Our text says two things about this salvation. It's a salvation that the prophets longed to understand, and it's a salvation which angels long to look into. Let's take them one by one. It's a salvation the prophets long to understand. We've touched on this already with John the Baptist. But the Old Testament prophets, one after another, beginning with Moses, spoke of the one who would bring this salvation. Oh, they say, a great person is coming. A great deliverer is coming. A great prophet is coming. A great priest is coming. A great king is coming. He'll be the seed of the woman promised to Eve who will crush the serpent's head. He will be the great descendant of Abraham through whom all the nations will be blessed. He will be the great ruler from Judah who will be a descendant of Jesse and his son David. So Isaiah says of him, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And in that day, the root of Jesse, the descendant of Jesse and his son David, in that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples, and of him, shall the nations inquire. Someone great is coming. Someone great is promised. The prophets not only spoke of him in specific ways, but they spoke of his sufferings beforehand. The 22nd Psalm prophesied the agonies of the cross a thousand years ahead of time. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. 700 years before the Sanhedrin's kangaroo court and Pilate's miscarriage of justice, Isaiah prophesied his sufferings. And Marty already read this section of Scripture to us. Let's read it again. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. He was cut off from the land of the living, living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked. He was hung with two criminals. And with a rich man in his death, he was buried in the tomb of Joseph. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. They spoke of his sufferings. And the prophets also spoke of the glories to follow. They prophesied his resurrection. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. They prophesied his glorious ascension. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train. They prophesied his glorious exaltation. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. They prophesied further glories, the glories of the outpouring of the Spirit upon the church. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Fulfilled, Acts chapter 2. They prophesied the glories of the gospel going forth. Arise, shine, your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and the nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. The prophets wanted to understand these things. They tried to piece it together. They searched and inquired diligently. When will these things take place? In what manner will these things take place? They studied and prayed and fasted, yet they did not understand. No. The privilege of understanding... This salvation, the great honor of receiving the benefits of it, the great blessing of telling others about it, would come not to the great prophets in their time, but to us in our time. We know exactly what person and what time and what manner. And... The prophecies of the prophets of old who earnestly sought the Lord confirm and strengthen and encourage our faith. The prophets were serving you, Peter says, in the things that have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. I don't want to rush past those words. The things that were announced to you through the preaching of the gospel by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, the revelation of this gospel which we have received, like the revelation given to the prophets, is from the Holy Spirit. The message of this salvation is so critical, it is so central, it is so essential that Jesus commanded his disciples after his resurrection not to depart Jerusalem until they had been empowered by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit to announce this salvation. You will receive power, he said, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Ever since that glorious day of Pentecost, the news of this great salvation has spread not by the mere rhetoric or the persuasion of man. It has been spread in the power of the Holy Spirit. The preaching of the gospel is not exclusively a human endeavor. It is an announcement. It is a report of the good news of salvation delivered in and with the power of the Spirit of God. The spread of the gospel worldwide, the The growth of the church worldwide for the last 2,000 years is much, much more than a sociological phenomenon. It is a divine phenomenon. When the gospel is preached, the Holy Spirit opens blind eyes. When the gospel is preached, the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. When the gospel is preached, the Holy Spirit Regenerates hearts, quickening them to new life. So whenever, whenever you or I preach the good news, whether from behind a pulpit or over coffee or on the telephone, however weak we may feel, however hesitant we are, however nervous we are, We can open our mouths knowing that the Holy Spirit will strengthen us, empower us, and give us the words to speak. brother pulled me aside as I was walking to my seat this morning. He said, you're preaching this morning? I said, yes. He said, don't worry. The Holy Spirit's going to help you. He said, you don't have to worry. The Lord's going to give you the words. And it's like... Brother, that's one of the points in my sermon. (laughs) We are blessed beyond the prophets who wanted to know and understand and experience this salvation. It is a salvation that they sought to understand. And it's also, secondly, a salvation that angels long to look into. We come to the last line of our text. The things that we have been talking about, everything related to our salvation, the things we've been talking about are of keen interest to the angels. Now that may be something curious to us. It certainly is to me. Why do the angels long to understand our salvation? Why is it such a big deal to the angels? My goodness, the angels are in heaven. They're beholding the face of God. They're worshiping among a countless multitude. They're beholding all the glories of heaven. Why would they be so interested in our salvation? Why are they so intent at looking upon our salvation? Well, I'll tell you why. Because our salvation eclipses anything God has ever done. It eclipses anything God has ever done. The angels have been around for I don't know how long, but they've never seen anything like our salvation. It staggers them that God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, would humble himself and become a man would die on the cross bearing the sins of sinful man, be raised to present his blood as a sacrifice for their sin. The whole thing blows their minds. They've never seen or heard or imagined anything like it. The angels love and worship Christ and Paul tells us that his unsearchable riches are made known to them through the church, through our salvation. The angels have long wondered at mysteries hidden for ages in God. Who knows how long? Mysteries were hidden, things that, things that they couldn't put together. They wondered at the mysteries hidden for ages in God and those mysteries are made known to the angels through our salvation. The angels worship God for His wisdom. They praise and magnify His wisdom. But Paul tells us again in Ephesians 3 that the manifold wisdom of God is made known to them through the church, through our salvation. That is a privilege and an honor that God has bestowed upon us. So, the angels in heaven marvel at our salvation. It thrills them. They glory in it, and it fires their praise. So I conclude with a question. Let me invite the band to come up. Bill, this sermon's a little short. How come you're ending so soon? Are you complaining? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. So I conclude with a question. What about us? They are, they are amazed at the grace of God. That has been given to us. They are amazed at the revelation which has come to them through us and our salvation. What about us? Are we amazed? Do we have a sense of the high privilege and honor that God has given us? You know, sometimes we can feel so bewildered by our sufferings that we lose all sense of the glory of our salvation. That's happened to us all. Sometimes we can feel so beaten down by this world that we can scarcely hold on to the blessing of our salvation. Sometimes we can feel so belittled and dishonored in this fallen world by people who despise our message and as a consequence despise us. We can feel so belittled and dishonored that we forget the greatness and the honor that God has granted to us. But I'll tell you this, surely when we are received into glory, surely when we are with Jesus, like our brother Steve Farley is now, surely then we will know that neither the prophets of old or the angels or the archangels or the seraphim or the cherubim were more privileged than the humblest Christian who came to know and understand this great salvation. If we could see what heaven sees now, if we could taste the glory that awaits us, we would know that even though we suffer, we are privileged people living in a privileged time who have experienced a privileged salvation. Brothers and sisters, if the prophets... Longed for the salvation that we enjoy. If the angels stand in awe of the salvation that we have received, then may this great salvation, now and forever, now and forever, be a glory and a wonder and a joy to us. Let us greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, greatly rejoice with glorious praise why we are saved we are saved